So now, Father, we come to you. We want to recognize, if we can, this morning, that one simple truth. If we can just take that truth deep into our hearts, uh, that this is your world, and that we get the opportunity to live in it for your glory and for our good. If we could just put that truth deep in our hearts, then our uh, weeks would be different, our lives would be different, our families, our communities, our culture would be different. They'd be God-glorifying, recognizing indeed how great you are. And yes, we so often live as orphans, thinking that we don't have a heavenly father. Maybe it's because some of us don't have earthly fathers that have amounted to anything. Maybe it's because we just don't believe that anybody would be that good or that kind to us. Or perhaps it's because that we've done something we're so ashamed of and feel so guilty about. We don't believe that you could see it and know it and still say, this is my son, this is my daughter, and with them I am well pleased. God, we know you love us. You don't love us out of obligation because of what Christ has done. For God, you so loved the world that you sent your son. And your son and our savior, our older brother, our king, he's the one who has won for us redemption And he's won for us life by nailing whatever record of debt we have onto the cross, putting to shame all who would shame us. And you give us your Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit of Christ that is breathed out in us so that we might have life and so that we might live life differently. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray, please come into our lives. Remind us of your goodness, of your grace to us, of your faithfulness to us. Convict us where you need to, but Spirit, make us alive, Holy Spirit. Uh, Spirit, make us Spirit-filled so we live out of your presence and we live out of the life that you give to us, that we would make decisions uh, with your enablement and help, that we would ask for your presence Uh, that we would be saturated, marinated, Holy Spirit, in your life in us so that we might overflow the presence of Christ to others in the love of God our Father. Father, with um, all of the pains and struggles, all the joys and anxieties, all the different moods uh, in the room right now, uh, we bring them all to you. And ask that you would be with us in this time that we opened your word. We pray in your name. Amen. Uh, The question before us today as we get to the book of Ecclesiastes is this. Does life have meaning? I mean, so many philosophers have opined on that. The daily farmer thinks about it. The stay-at-home dad, it crosses his mind. Uh, The high-powered female business attorney, she thinks about it in those quiet moments that she has. Does life have any kind of meaning whatsoever? Some philosophers have said that life only has meaning when you determine that it's meaningless. For example, Anton Chekhov, 
He wrote Brilliant Russian. He wrote a phenomenal short story. And in this short story, there's a dinner party and there's a lawyer and the banker. And the lawyer is 25 years old. The banker is 50 years old. And the banker says the only meaning in life is that if you have relationships, that will give your life meaning. And, uh, and on the opposite side, the lawyer, the young lawyer said, I don't believe that's true. So they made a bet. And they made a bet for five million uh, rubles that the lawyer could stay on the estate of the banker for five years. The lawyer was so confident. He said, I'll do it for 15. I'll stay on your estate for 15 years in isolation to show you that those relationships that you claim you have don't have any meaning. Done deal. And so as the short story continues, the first couple years were filled with uh, books. They would, you know, give him meals underneath the door and he would read all of these books. He'd just devour all these books. And then year five to year about eight, he learned all of these musical instruments. He'd ask for a violin and then he'd ask for a trumpet and you could hear the sounds coming out of that small estate uh, that he lived in on the banker's larger estate. And, And then it says in year 10, he asked for a New Testament And that year was spent in absolute silence. They didn't hear anything coming from the cottage. He just read, read, and read, and read. And meanwhile, the banker had become bankrupt. He had made a number of bad business deals. So he knew he couldn't ever pay the money that he promised. So he decided the day before the deal was done, he was going to sneak in and kill him and blame the gardener for it. He was going to frame him. So he snuck in to kill him in Anton Chekhov's short story. Snuck in and kill him, and he found him asleep, and he found that there was a note left by the young lawyer, and the note said this, I am now wiser than you all. I despise all of your books. I despise all earthly blessings and wisdom. All that you have is worthless and false, hollow and deceiving like the mirage. You might be proud, wise, and beautiful, but death will wipe you away from the face of this earth as it does the mice that live beneath your floor and all of your heirs, your history, and your geniuses will freeze or burn with the destruction of earth. And to prove my point, I'm leaving an hour before so you don't have to pay me a dime. In other words, none of this is worth it. Y'all have completely lost your way. If it's not that, take Aldous Huxley. I know I'm going a little bit deep academically in the first five minutes, but this is when you're most awake. (laughs) Aldous Huxley, Ends and Means, 1937, says, For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom and other freedoms. We objected to political and economic systems because it was unjust. The supporters of these systems claimed that in some way they embodied meaning, the Christian meaning, they said, of the world. In other words, what Huxley says is, if you can just declare that the world is meaningless, if you can say nothing has any meaning in this world, then you know what that means? You get to do whatever you want. There's no restraints. There's no morality. So you get to live a life of absolute freedom. That's what Huxley said. Or take it from the other great philosopher. Let me give you one more, Halle Berry, who's... Uh, I don't know if you've listened to some of her uh, interviews, but she is brilliant. They asked her, what's, what's it like to be beautiful? That's what one interviewer asked her. What a bold, obnoxious question. And Barry said, beauty? 
you should watch this. She actually gets pretty angry. Beauty, let me tell you something. Being thought of as beautiful and thought of as a beautiful woman has spared me nothing in life. No heartache, no trouble. Love has always been difficult for me. In other words, I don't know if somebody loves me for actually me or they just love me for this. How could I possibly know it? It spared me nothing in life. Y'all think it's given me everything. It spared me nothing. Then she says, beauty is essentially meaningless, and it's always transitory, meaning I'll, I'll lose it soon. And someday nobody will be asking to take pictures of me. They'll take pictures of some other 29-year-old, 28-year-old, I think she was, when she gave that interview. Well, when we come to the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, as we review this whole book, I'm just taking chapter 12, but that's all of those reflect kind of the mindset of Solomon who wrote, we think, Ecclesiastes. It could be Solomon, it could be somebody else. The author is only referred to in Hebrew as the Kaheleth, or in other words, the preacher is how the author is referred to, but most think it's Solomon. And early on, if you just look at chapter one, if you want to flip back, the first and second paragraph, the words of the preacher, the Kaheleth, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanities of vanities, says the preacher, vanities of vanities, all is vanity. That word uh, vanity is hebel. And so it could be meaninglessness, or it could be vanity. Either way, it doesn't matter. Just substitute different translations, do it either way. Meaninglessness, meaningless, everything is meaningless. None of this matters. And then chapters 1 through 11 go all the way through, and they talk about, look, I tried to get women. That didn't give me any meaning. Look, I, I tried to get riches. That didn't give me any meaning. I read all these books. I built all these gardens. I did all of these things, and what I found was none of those gave me joy. And the theme that runs throughout the book of Ecclesi Ecclesiastes is this. Everything is meaningless, so you might as well just eat, drink, and be merry. Now, the preacher the Kaheleth, doesn't mean that in a hedonistic way. He, he means that in a way of this. Since everything is meaningless, you might as well just be present with where you are at that moment. You might as well just enjoy what's before you. This is not just hedonism. This is, since everything is meaningless, just enjoy the present moment that you're in. And everybody in this room knows that is incredibly difficult. We have this digital picture frame uh, that's in our kitchen, which is both a blessing and a curse. Uh, I don't, I, I haven't existentially decided what I think about this yet. And I said that to Elizabeth the other day. I was like, I don't existentially know what I think about this picture frame. And she said, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> like the, which is how most conversations go in our house. Anyway, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Just have a cup of coffee and relax. Uh, and so we have this picture frame, and it will show these pictures that she's uploaded of our kids and our family and other families over the years. And uh, half the time, you're so encouraged. And then the other half the time, you think, was I fully present at that birthday party? Or was I just thinking about the next sermon? Was I fully present when we went to Disney World, or was I just thinking about that staff transition? Was I fully present in that moment that this memory reflects, or was I there geographically, but mentally I was somewhere else? 
Uh, that's one of the things that we have to learn in life is how to be present in the moment. And it's one of the driving theories of the book of Ecclesiastes. So two main points. I'm going to sneak in three subpoints underneath the second point. But here it goes. The first point is this. The presence of death makes you present in life. The, the fact that death is at our doorstep should, as Ecclesiastes says, make us present in life. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. In other words, don't squander those away. Uh, remember your creator, those times that he has guided you and walked beside you from the days of your youth. The evil days come and the years draw near, of which you say, I take no pleasure in them. I, I'm sure you've experienced this like I have, but I've been in a number of hospital rooms over the years, countless numbers, where uh, somebody has said to me, Andy, why won't the Lord just take me? I'm so ready to go. I have no pleasure being stuck in this hospital room. I have no pleasure in this hospice bed. I am done. Why won't Jesus just take me now? I don't understand it. Countless conversations like that. Before the sun and the light and the moons and the stars are darkened and clouds return after the rain, rain signifying the tears, the clouds signifying from what we can tell, everything starts to get dimmed and darkened because you get older in life and you get cataracts and everything gets cloudy and you can't see anymore. Remember, this is 1,000 B.C.-ish when this was written. There was no cataract surgery. That starts to happen. There's nothing that makes your vision clear again. Everything just starts to get dim. You can hear your grandkids, but you can't see them. You can maybe reach out your hands and, and touch them every now and then when they run by, but that's about the best you can do. Verse 3, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble, get older in your life, one of the fears of surgeons uh, that I've talked to is that very moment, what's my hands start to get trembly. I've got to quit. You can't do surgery like that. But everybody, you get older and your hands start to tremble. You can't keep the house. And the strong men, look at verse 3, the strong men are bent. You've seen those guys just bent over, can't quite fully get up and stretch out. I feel that happening right now. <laughs> the grinders cease because they're few. A couple of teeth have fallen out don't have as many teeth. You're forced to eat soft foods. You can't bite into that fresh kill anymore. You've got to eat pablum. And those who look through the windows are dim and the doors on the street are shut and the sound of the grinding is low. You can't eat with any kind of uh, vicosity. And one rises at the sound of a bird. <laughs> you know that feeling, some of us, where it's like it's 5.30, you're waking up whether you want to or not. The bird wakes up and you're just up and there's not a thing you can do to go back to sleep. And all the dollars of song are brought low and they're afraid of what's high. And the terrors are in the way. I love they're afraid of what's high. When I was in um, one summer in college, two summers in college actually, I, my job was to build a ropes course. 
And I would go all, 70 feet up, 60 feet up. We would go up and we would build. We'd drive in all the pins, all these drills, all this stuff attached to you. And then we'd have these pins and you'd drill in the pins and then you would clap onto two of them and you would check them by jumping off the tree and seeing if one of them pulls out. You knew the second one was secure. And if it pulls out, you, you know it's not good. So you go do that one again. I don't know how I did that. Because when I was 35, I still remember this, I was on my, um, kind of where my garage is, cleaning out the gutters, and I remember thinking, I'm not even that high up, I remember thinking, if I fall, this will hurt, like, badly. And all of a sudden, at like 35, I got scared of heights. Never scared of heights. But life moves on, and all of a sudden, you're afraid of what's high, the tears are in the way, the, awesome, the almond tree blossoms, your hair uh, starts to get gray, the grasshopper drags itself along, desire fails, you become impotent. Because man is going to his eternal home, the mourners go about the streets, the silver cord is snapped, the reference to the spinal cord, the golden bowl is broken, you have a fall, break your head. Or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel is broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaninglessness or vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. The presence of death makes you present of life. Look, uh, that's why Billy Joel sings, only the good die young. Because it's actually, in many ways, a blessing we don't think about death enough in this culture. In American culture, somebody dies, the coroner pronounces them, they go right to the mortuary. You probably will never see them again unless you want to. But in other cultures, you're forced to deal with death. The family does the embalming with the help of a professional, but you yourself, you do it. You would bury them, like physically bury them. Many cultures, they carry them through the streets. Many cultures, they would mourn them for a period of time. Here in America, we don't deal with death very well. We just kind of keep it an arm's length away. And so we never have an effect. I'm going to one day die. Maybe tomorrow, maybe this week. We have no idea what time we have. Our days are numbered, and only the Lord knows that. So I might as well enjoy in the present time, this day, this meal, this life, what's right before us. One of the first weddings I ever did, uh, we, we had a viewing beforehand. It was at a mortuary, and we had an open casket. And the casket was here, and the line kind of came in and around this way. And I put myself in a chair here for some reason. I'm not sure why. I was just in the room in case somebody needs some counseling or I need to talk to somebody or somebody became overwhelmed, and I was doing the funeral right after. And you know what I noticed watching down that line where the casket's here and all the people are passing by? The young kids would look and then they take two steps over and they look some more and then they typically go to their parents and ask a question. The older people would take a quick glance and would move away. And I observed that time and time and time again. The young kids kind of fascinated with death because they hadn't seen it. And the older people were saying, that's way too close. I want to distance myself. The presence of death makes us present in life. Now, if you're a Christian, there's really, really, really good news, and here it is. You don't have to fear death. 
It's just your body telling you you're ready to go home. I like what George McDonald says. George McDonald says, how strange when you're a Christian this fear of death is. We're never, ever frightened at the sunset. <laughs> we're never frightened. It just means there's going to be a new dawning day. It means we're going to wake up and there's going to be new morning mercies. You're never scared of the sunset. And we know as Christians, you just pass through the shadow of death. But the fact is, and this is not something that we talk about a lot, the fact is that the presence of death should make us present in life. Now, I want to do something. And I know this is going to be out of most of your comfort zones. I'm okay with that. This is not transcendental meditation. But everybody right now, just pause. And I want everybody to take Three deep breaths. Go ahead. Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in the mighty heavens. Praise him in the mighty deeds. Praise him in his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipes. Praise him with the sounding cymbals. Praise him with the loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. For whatever reason, you have breath right now. For whatever reason, you have life right now. That last breath will leave your body at some point which should be a good reminder that we don't have to be scared of that, but our present life where we do have breath, the goal is to praise the Lord. These instruments are not prescriptive. Like these are not, we wouldn't read Psalm 150 and say, okay, we have to have a trumpet and a lute and a harp and cymbals and a tambourine. That is the prescribed, you know, trio or quartet of what everybody needs, quintet actually, of what everybody needs. No, we would say, no, this says, look, whatever you have, whether it's cymbals or lute or a pipe, whatever you can gather together to praise, you just praise the Lord with that. So while you have life and while you have breath and while I have it, whatever you have, you praise the Lord. It could be cancer, it could be sorrow, it could be anguish, it could be fear, it could be anxiety, it could be joy, it could be a good meal, it could be a small meal with love but we learn how to praise the Lord with whatever God has given us at that moment because we only have one go around at this thing. You only have one chance to be 15. You only have one chance to be 55. You only have one chance to be at the birth of your grandkids. You only have, we only have, there's no mulligan. We only got one shot at this gig until the Lord takes us home. And so the presence of death should make us present in life. I like what it says, of course, Psalm 40, all flat flesh is grass and the beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But when the breath of the Lord blows on it, the people are grass and the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And I wish I could undo this more, but it's the presence of the Holy Spirit which is breathed on us, which gives us the ability to praise and to worship. Now, Uh, And let me say one more thing about that. If you're struggling with praising, ask the Holy Spirit for help. 
Like if you're struggling, if you're like more bitter and cynical and you're like, I have breath, but I'm so, so mad at God because of this, this, or that. the Holy Spirit's there. So you can say, Holy Spirit, help me uh, praise you with the breath that you have given me. Now, number two, and quickly, it is godly fear that keeps you present in life. First of all, it's the present of death that makes you present in life, but it's godly fear that keeps you present in life. Being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed in the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd, My son, be aware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there's no end. In much study, there's weariness of the flesh. And then the last verses, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or whether evil. In other words, every one of us are going to have to stand in front of Christ and give some kind of account. Now, for the Christian, you don't, there's a godly fear there. You don't have to fear that moment because God's going to say, why did you do this? And you'll say, well, I did it because of this. And God will say, well, did you not know that I would have cared for you in that way? And you go through the process and you review your life and you give an account for every word, every action, everything you've done. And then the end of that matter is this. Come here, son. Come here, daughter. Well done, good and faithful servant. But if you're not a believer, you have to go through the same process. And you'll say, well, God, you didn't give me enough evidence. And God will say, well, don't you remember when I did this and this and this? Don't you remember when I kind of drew you near to me and you rejected me? Don't you remember when I showed you this? Don't you remember when I put that into your heart and you rejected that too? But the end will be different for the non-believer. For the non-believer, God will say at the end, depart from me. I never knew you. But that reality of godly fear still sits on us. Even though we know that God is going to forgive us and God's going to give us grace and mercy, we still live in the light. For God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. For the Christian, they'll be all accounted for by the forgiveness and grace of Christ. But it's that godly fear that keeps us present in life when you're tempted uh, to gossip when you're tempted to cheat, when you're tempted to steal, when you're tempted to not believe, you, when you're tempted to do something uh, erotic that is outside the bounds of sexuality, you think, I'm going to have to give an account for this. I'm going to have to tell God why I didn't trust him with this. And, and that's not a fearful thing. It's a godly fear. Three quick points. Godly fear motivates instead of paralyzes. To understand verse 13 and 14, you have to look at the precursor, verse 11 and 12. The words of the wise are like goads. Um, We're tended to be um, so in paralysis, paralysis of apathy, not wanting to trust and not wanting to move forward, but there are goads. The words wise are like goads to say, come on, get up, keep going, keep trusting the Lord, Uh, Don't live in the paralysis of analysis. Don't live in the paralysis of your self-sufficiency or of your apathy. 
These are goads, like somebody would use a goad, a stick, to push on an animal to keep moving. That's what happens. And we see that in the New Testament as well. Luke chapter 2. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. So there's fear there. And the angel said, fear not. You're scared in the wrong way right now. I know you're scared, but I need this to be a godly fear. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all of the people. Let me just say this. In a world filled with so much bad news, uh, and uh, you know all of the bad news that we get, you just cannot open any webpage of news without seeing it filled with bad news. Do not forget that the fundamental story about Christianity is good news. I have come to save and to redeem the world. We filled our minds and our hearts and our thought life with so much bad news that we can't even hear the good news anymore. That Jesus knows you and loves you and has called you to his kingdom to create a kingdom here on earth as is in heaven and to go out and to find somebody to love and find somebody to encourage and take a cold cup of water to somebody in the name of Christ and to go on a mission trip or fund somebody else to do it or to share the gospel with your neighbor. It is good. This is good news and that he's conquered death, hell, and the grave forever. And although our eyes will one day dim, they will wake again to the new heavens and to the new earth. That's, that's good news. Fill your hearts with the good news. I give you good news of great joy for all the people that to us a Christ has been born. Number two, godly fear is an anchor for life, not anxiety. Look at verse 11 again. They're like goads. In other words, these wise words, they push us and they pry us on. And then they're like nails firmly fixed to the collected sayings. In other words, it's not only prodding us, but it's also nailing down, if you look at verse 11, the things that you need to know. Anxiety, anxiety comes when you think, I've got everything to lose. Nothing's nailed down. But the anchor is when it is nailed down and it is secured. And so they're, that's what he says. They're like nails, uh, I love that idea that as Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, where he says, look, the, the record of your debt has been nailed firmly to the cross, and it puts to shame everybody who wants to shame you for whatever you've done. And this nail say, look, you're secure, you're anchored, like the buoys that show you the channel, the stuff that you couldn't possibly see underneath the water. These buoys that are anchored down into this lake or into the ocean, they show you the safe channels of obedience. And so these nails, these wise words, will they help and they show us. Matthew chapter 14, but when the disciples saw him walking, on the sea, they were terrified. Again, this moment of fear. It's not yet a godly fear. It's just a fear at this point. And he said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart. It is I. Don't be afraid. Look, when you have the knowledge that all of your sin, all of your shame, all of your guilt has been nailed to the cross through his wrists, through his legs, uh, then when you have that knowledge, you don't have to live in fear. When you have the knowledge that Jesus loves you, 
and he knows everything about you, and he still loves you, and he's going to get you home, then you don't have to live in fear. Fear sometimes comes with a lack of knowledge. Quick story. Uh, we were in Mexico. I was with uh, high school students in Mexico. This was years ago. We were in San Luis Portosí, I, I think, uh, and we slept in hammocks uh, in this big room. All the guys were in one room. All the girls were in another room. Parker Causey, I still remember this. Uh, he opened up his hammock, and there was a huge tarantula in it like this. And so he flipped his hammock and the tra- just instinctively, and the tarantula flew out and onto another hammock where a guy was taking a nap. So he just gets this flying tarantula on him. So he freaks out, you know, hits his hand, the tarantula goes across the room again. That poor tarantula's like, what is happening? <laughs> you know? And then we all, like, there's like 10 of us in there, and we're all surrounding the tarantula in like this circle, like we're about to fight it, but everybody's scared of it, and we don't know what's about to happen. And then the 13-year-old missionary daughter walks in, and she's like, what are you guys doing? I heard a lot of screaming. And we're all looking at this tarantula, and she walks right in, grabs it, takes it over, throws it across the fence, and says, if you know how to deal with it, they won't bite you, and walked off. That was it. And we were just stunned. But her knowledge, this thing that you're scared of, can't actually hurt you. Those things that you're scared of in your life, they actually won't harm you. Don't you think you have a good shepherd? Somebody who will love you and protect you and guide you through each present moment of your life? So these things in your future that you're scared of, Don't we have a better God than to live in fear all the time? Lastly, godly fear protects rather than exposes. And that's what it says in verse 11. They're given by a good shepherd, and this shepherd will always protect us. Bonhoeffer, those who are still afraid of men have not fear of God, and those who are fear of God have not ceased to be afraid of men. One of his last letters before he was killed. And then Luke 7, let me just say this, to go back to this idea that the presence of death will lead us present in life. Luke chapter 7, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. This is when he stopped a funeral procession. He had compassion. He said, don't weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bear is still silent. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. So Jesus, inter- he interrupts this processional, this barrier processional. And he stops it because he has compassion on the lady. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother, and fear seized them all. That's a godly fear, though, because they knew there is one that has the power over life and death. And they glorified God, and they said, a great prophet has risen among us. God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. Now, what if we can live that way? There is a great prophet among us who has arisen, and he has visited us. And the godly fear says our God can do what nobody else can do. Our God can do things that we couldn't imagine and dream. And our God is compassionate. He's compassionate. Now, closing, just so some of you can win a bet, let me quote Hamilton. You know, the the theme throughout Hamilton, uh, which we saw Friday night, 
The theme throughout Hamilton is at the end, really. I don't know what you think it's about. But the theme really is who lives, who dies, who's going to tell your story? Or are you just going to be lost to this world? You can wander through the graveyard. There's a life everybody's forgotten. There's a life everybody's forgotten. Everybody would have forgotten Alexander Hamilton were it not for Ron Chirrell, who wrote the book. Then Lin-Manuel Miranda made it popular. But he would have been written off. Who, who's going to remember who Alexander Hamilton was? Nobody. And the answer in the play, of course, is Eliza, which is a small answer. But in the reality, who lives and who dies and who tells your story? Well, God does. Your father, who in the new heavens and the new earth. I, th- I think one of the greatest things about heaven is that God is going to reveal your story to the world in a miraculous way. Hey, this is my son, Andy. He was a complete mess. I, I made him go into ministry because it was the only way I was convinced he'd actually go to church every week. <laughs> and, and somehow with all of his problems and fears, God every now and then would work through him. And when we got them home, hey, here's this person. They, they strolled growing up in this abusive home, but the way they trusted me, hey, here's this person. They're on their third divorce, but they finally found love in me and me being their refuge. Hey, here's this person. He failed in five businesses, but he trusted me. He even tithed when he was failing. Here's, I think God's going to say, here's, here's my son. Here's my daughter. I love them. Let me display for you what I did in them, and he's going to tell our stories. And he's going to make sure they're beautiful because he's redeemed them and he's bought us at a price and he's taken shame and guilt from us. And so, friends, the presence of death makes you present in life. And that's godly fear makes us present in life. This week, with the breath that you have, let's praise the Lord. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Father, we now pray. As we sing this last song, as we go into our days, we're tempted just to flip from email to email, scrolling through whatever app is our best opiate, filling our minds and our lives with fear of what might happen or what has happened, or because your love for us is firmly nailed to the cross of Christ. We could live this week praising you with every breath you give us. Every situation, every struggle, every joy, every gratitude. Make us a people who are present and worshiping and loving you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's